I'm Kimberly C. Paul. Today we talk with Tim Bowersmith and Remy Little. They're nomads, adventurous spirits that spent an entire year traveling with Tim's 90-year-old mother in an RV. The life lesson learned from driving Miss Norma? That it's never too late to say yes to living. How do we become the architect of our own destiny? Throughout two decades of working with the dying, I think I've discovered the secrets to dying well in America. We must learn to build the pathways to our last chapter, to create the blueprints that reflects our individual lives and values. Knowledge is power, and if we desire a death that reflects our life, we must become the designer. So today we're coming to you from Washington, D.C., and you might can hear some background noise because we're sitting in the lobby of Hilton, Capitol Hilton, right downtown Washington, D.C., and we're here to really talk a little bit about SeaTac and how important these summits every year are, and they have brought so many thought providers together to brainstorm and talk about how we can improve advanced illness and how we can take care of the caregiver, how we can take care of regulations and making some enhancements in the political world, as well as just normal, interesting individuals like uh, Tim and Remy, who who are driving Miss Norma around and being caregivers themselves. So thank you for joining us. What is it like to be at a conference in Washington, D.C.? What's it like to be off the boat <laughs> and into reality, let alone in the powerhouse of the free world? It's, it's uh, overwhelming. I, I can only imagine. And the, and the funny thing is, y'all spoke last night at SeaTac Summit, and you were amazing. So authentic and so, so real. And I've, I've not seen speakers like that before, which... But y'all don't speak a lot. No, well, we unlike everyone else here, we didn't come with prepared notes and stand at the podium. I looked out at the audience last night. Every single person was engaged with us last night. And we asked for microphones that we could walk around with. They wanted us to sit down and be quiet, but that's not No, we we just we, we just tell our story and and people people respond to the way we 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 tell it. You showed up at your parents to do your yearly kind of check-in to do your maintenance things and you found them not in good health no my dad was in a health crisis he was he was in a severe pain and, and barely able to talk in fact that was that was the last time we had had food with him that that evening we had a little bit of supper we brought some food with us so we, we every time we come up we always bring some food and share it with them and that was that was the last supper we had with my dad our first night there. Did you did you realize that he was actively dying at that point? No, <laughs> my parents are very stoic Germans from the from the Depression era. That the greatest generation, as Tom Brokaw says, they don't want to be a burden. Yet my dad was in this severe situation, and no, they did not reach out to me. I I, I do not understand that. But you you in the back of your mind, you wanted to have this end of life conversation for years, and you sort of always avoided it and then it kind of slapped you in your face yeah we were forced into it we were determined this time around that we were going to have the conversation but it, we got short-circuited and we we now had to have the conversation it is best to have these conversations before there's a crisis when we when we showed up we came armed really with a, a new sense of confidence because we had just read to go on book and we're like okay we we can do this and we have a 
more clarity than we've ever had in our lives um, coming off of, of reading that book. And we were ready to go, but they they had a different thing going on. So, Well, to backtrack, you guys live a nomadic life. I mean, you, you guys do not have an address. Correct. <laughs> we have a P.O. box. Who checks it? So y'all are on the road in this RV. You're traveling and actually, I think, saying yes to living. I mean, not conforming to traditional way of life um, and you guys are driving in this RV to see your parents and your father is admitted he dies and suddenly you turn to your mother and something's going on with her as well yeah it was actually while Leo was actively dying in the hospital that Norma quietly said you know, can you take me downstairs for, for some tests and that was the first time that we knew anything was going on with her and let's also preference that you guys are private people. Very much so. You know, you're you're not you're not interested in in even speaking in large groups of of people. No, that is very true, Kimberly. No, it, I, yes, very private people. Even when Ramy started putting our story out on Facebook, and there were only 520 people. That that still was quite a bit of an exposure to me to have 520 strangers following us every day and knowing what we're doing and what we're up to. So were you upset? I was very upset, actually. Well, I, I wasn't upset until Ramey got it, our story on the Good News Network, GNN, a, a, a website on that caters to just good news. And then it went viral. And then everybody, everybody wanted to talk to us. I mean, we got a call that very day from CBS Evening News. So, I mean, come on. <laughs> we're just minding our own business in Florida, and all of a sudden, they want they want to talk to us about That's this. like a holy shit moment, right? Yeah, we've had many holy shit moments. <laughs> Tim saying I was very upset is the biggest understatement in in the world. <laughs> it rocked our world. It it, it kind of sucked our 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 contrived idea of we have the ultimate freedom of living this lifestyle to all of a sudden millions of people are watching our every day. Did you have a clue that this could even happen? You know, how many stories are put out that never go viral? Right. No. I mean, in a million years, this is not what I would have expected to happen. Yeah, But interestingly enough, I accused her of saying, I said, you had to have known this was going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> it's the internet after all, but this that shows my ignorance of, of viral. <laughs> I went into the wrong field if I knew this was going to happen. Exactly, man. I need you on my side. Um, so what was up with your mom? You know, Leo was in the hospital, actively dying. What your mom went down for a test? What what happened? I think Ramy could be better better to speak to that because she went downstairs with her and, and stood behind her when the technician was was giving her a, a transvaginal ultrasound. <gasps> and when, when Ramy discovered she could see on the screen that there was a a baseball sized object above my mom's uterus, and that that's when we had the first inkling. Oh, we were so focused on dad. Mom mom was putting all her focus on dad. She she. If she didn't have that appointment, we probably would have never known this. She, she wouldn't have told have left. us. Probably. Yeah. So so what was that like, Ramey, to be, this is your mother-in-law. Right. I mean, but y'all, y'all, how long have y'all been married? Uh, 11 years. So, I mean, you guys were 
close. I mean, as close as you can be uh, as a nomadic showing up. And so y'all, but what was that like sitting beside, she was 90? She was 90. Her husband of 67 years was two floors above her dying. And so our head was wrapped, wrapped around Leo and his, his process, his death process at this point. And he was absolutely our priority until I saw this technician start circling and circling and circling and, and was like, oh, this, I don't know much about medicine, but this cannot be good. And um, so that's when we, we were like, you know, we have to have this conversation with Norma because she now, you know, we, Leo's going to be out of the picture very soon. And we, we need to figure it out. That, I mean, how many families have had that that question arise in their minds what do we do with mom dad now what do we do with dad now everything has shifted their circumstances a well-oiled team of managing in their own own home for for all these years now is it's gone and so so what was the conversation like when you're you're still have the rv and now you realize she's facing uh an illness i mean Talk to me a little bit about what she said to the doctor. Well, we knew she she hadn't gotten the diagnosis yet. So she went in for the tests. And, you know, just from what I saw on the screen, I knew that, that, that it was coming. And I told Tim, I said, we, we've got to have a plan before we go in. And the doctor gives her whatever news that he's going to give her. And so it was a casual conversation at her kitchen table over lunch and I said, Norma, you know, it's possible that, that what the doctor has to say tomorrow is, is not going to be good news. And, and she immediately jumped in and said, I know. And she said, and no matter what he says, I'm not doing any of it. If he tells me I have cancer, I'm not doing that chemo stuff. He said, uh, she, she said, I'm tired of all the poking and prodding and I'm just going to live the rest of my life. And so then the question is, where is she going to live the rest of her life? She, she also volunteered that she knew she couldn't live at home alone without Leo. Um, she, she had no interest in, a, in an in-home caregiver. And I think always she doesn't ever want to be a burden on us. She couldn't ask us to, to move in with her. Um, there wasn't room for us to move into, into her small home. And so it came down to two, two options, really. It was you know, a, some kind of assisted living or care facility, or like what many adult children of elderly parents do is, you know, hey, come with, live with us and, and we'll, we'll take care of you. And she knew our house had wheels. <laughs> so, so, you know, we said, really take your time, think about it, pray about it. We're not in any hurry. We have lots to do around here. Whenever you're really clear about the decision, then, you know, we'll support you. How, whatever, you know, we'll find a, a nursing home for you. You'll come with us. We can get a bigger motor home if you want to, whatever it is. But it's your decision. And um, it took her about a minute and a half and a crunch on her dill pickle. And she said, I think I'd like to come along. She made that great big life decision in, in less than two minutes, sitting at the table, given the options and all the uncertainty. She, what she, did she that never make trapped. you feel like, though? Were you like, uh... <laughs> yes, yes. Well, this is an oh shit moment for sure. <laughs> it's interesting. Ramey and I, we made this decision to ask her to come along without even talking 
it, we looked at each other just by looking at each other in our eyes, each other. We knew what we had to do. We knew we had to ask her to come along. We did not have a pro and con. What if she does come along? How are we going to do this? How are we going to manage? What's this going to mean for our marriage? How are we going to, how's it going to change our lifestyle? We had none of these conversations. We just looked at each other and we have so much love for each other that we, we, we knew what we had to do. Some, a couple, a couple of people have said, Tim, you're a hero. And I'm like, get out of here. I'm not a hero. I said, all I did, I, I was presented a situation. And I did the only thing I could do. And then they tell me, that, well, that's what a hero does. Oh, well. And that's, I, we saw no other, re, no other recourse. We had to ask her to come along. We were all ready to go back down to Mexico. We had new tires on the tow vehicle. The trailer was ready to go. There was no way I could leave her behind and go to Mexico and 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 never see her again. But what happened when she did say yes to living? You saw an entirely different side of your mom. When did that moment happen? Do you recall the moment where you're like, oh my gosh, my, my mom is not who I thought she was? Yeah, so then it wasn't, in, it wasn't at the house. My mom's brother died a month to the day before my dad. That was her last sibling, her last here the last really my when my dad left she was alone in this world she 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 had us and she made a she made an incredible leap of faith to 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 live she, she's a brave person to, to bust out of a her situation yeah my mom t- made it very clear she didn't want any medical intervention and we supported her on that so we went to the OBGYN for the final, for the real diagnosis. This is, this is what you have. And he gave her a, it was interesting, the power play of medical people. My mom's tiny five foot person in a giant wheelchair. She's down below. And, and the doctor positioned himself on the table where the patients oh, usually sure. are. So he's, there's a superior and inferior position to start with. There's, I'm the doctor authority. You're the patient. There's that, that hierarchy. And he presented a course of therapy, which was a hysterectomy, chemotherapy, radiation, ICU, rehabilitation. And perhaps if you get through all that, you'll spend the rest of your days in a care facility. And my mom summoned the courage. She sat straight up in her wheelchair and she just told the doctor, I'm 90 years old. I'm hitting the road. (laughs) Of course, he had no idea what the heck that meant. So we had to explain to him that. We were taking mom, she's refusing medical treatment, and we're taking her on the road with us to have the most joyous end-of-life experience we could provide for her. And interestingly enough, his demeanor completely changed. He, he, he felt like, as a doctor, mm-hmm. he had to prescribe a therapy, even if it was a ridiculous one for a 90-year-old person. But once we broke that facade, he, he was really with us. He, he was like, I, as doctors, we see this all the time. We see, we see the horrible side effects and people not even making it through the surgery. And he said, if it were me, I'd want to be in that motorhome. And he gave us his blessing. He said, he really did. Mm. He changed completely. We gave him permission, like we gave mom permission. When did all of this bucket list start happening? I wish Norma had a bucket list. (laughs) (laughs) That would have made our adventure much easier to plan. But ultimately, the plan was to have no plan. Yeah. So I, I, I wanted some clues, though, and and so when we were when we were planning and closing closing up Leo's affairs, and we had to we had to buy a bigger home, a, a motor home, and and 
And so I spent a lot of time with Norma trying to figure out what was important to her. Wh- where did she want to go? What did she want to see? And, and most of the time she said, oh, anywhere, you know, it all looks great. And I right. was like, okay, that's cool, but it's not helpful. And um, so there were a couple of things that, sh- that she was interested in. And one of them was Mount Rushmore. And so we were in the kind of the northern tier of the U.S. and thought, okay, that's a good good place to aim for. Um, so we took off in that direction. The, the probably third or fourth day, we found ourselves in Blue Earth, Minnesota, um, camping, sleeping in a Walmart parking lot in Blue Earth, Minnesota. And, and we, we, we thought, let's embrace the quirkiness. I mean, Norma was virtually wordless. She had lost weight. She wasn't well at all. And we, it was all we could do really to get her out of the driveway. And so you were thinking this might be like a month or two. And if that, that. yeah, I I was, I was hoping we could get to the first place. I had just bought this hundred thousand dollar motorhome and a new Jeep. And, and I thought we're going to amortize this over a two week trip. This is going to be bad. It was, it was really that dire. I, I can't overstate that. Were you scared to see your mom so fragile? Yes. Yeah, I was scared. I was scared for us all. Yeah. And you were hitting the road. Yeah. Again, we were for, I was we were presented a situation and we're very pragmatic people. You give us give us a situation, we we mobilize and act to it. We, our friends can't believe that we just can can like shift <laughs> gears and take off and do some, do something after just coming up with the idea and then implement it in such a fa- great fashion fast fashion. You know, many people need like 10 years to like formulate a plan to change their lives where we can like okay, we, this we we got it. Here we go. That's oh my gosh! You're my heroes just for that reason alone. Is because I think I think so many people need to plan their life, and it's in life can come to you if you're still enough. You're, it really does. And so here you guys were on the road. She was fragile. You guys didn't know what you were getting into. And you were going to stop to see the president faces. Right. But on the way there, we're in Blue Earth, Minnesota. And it's the home of the world's largest Jolly Green Giant statue. And we thought, let's see what she does with this. So we wheeled her over to it with her wheelchair, which was the best investment we've ever made, by the way. Um, and and she looked up at this 55-foot tall vegetable icon locked the wheels of her wheelchair, handed Tim her cane and walked over with her green sweater that she happened to have on that day, put her hands to her hips and raised her head in the exact pose of the Jolly Green Giant. And, uh, you know, we, we were just bent over in belly laughter. We had never seen this side of her ever in Tim's entire life, had never seen his mom that side of her. And at that moment, we realized that she's got more life in her than we could have ever imagined, that she has a sense of humor that we weren't aware of, and that she wanted to show us that she was ready to have some fun. And that's, that's, that's really when we, we, we gave her the persona Miss Norma. She transformed from being my mom, from Norma, for mom-in-law to, to Miss Norma. She, it was a whole new persona. It was a, it was a personality I had no idea it was dormant or even available to her. Do you feel like you got to know your mom on this trip like in a way that I mean it's absolutely surprised you? Oh, truly. I I I left my family early. I, I when I was 19 I moved to Colorado and I, at 27 I moved to Hawaii. I just kept moving further and further away and infrequent contacts with my family, not not out of animosity or anything, but just 
I was living my life. I, my my parents raised a perfectly good person, and I was I set free. Off I went. I didn't know my mom very well. I, I'd call home infrequently. My dad would be on the phone. We had superficial conversations. The weather, who's how's Uncle Ralph doing? What's going on down the street? Stuff like that. And I'd, I'd have to. I knew my mom was on the other line. I could hear the static from their from their <laughs> 1980s versions of telephones. So I, and I'd say, "Mom, are you there?" "Oh yeah, I'm, I'm here." But we never had any substantive conversation about anything, really. We we would when I came home, we would talk. You know, we'd cook in the kitchen, or I would talk about food. Everything was totally superficial. I didn't realize my mom had the capacity to be that deep. I I, I don't mean to no no disparage but, I mean, her, do you but think she conformed to to something or i mean oh very much so yes she was she was a product of her time she she grew up during the depression she she was in world war ii she was i had an ozzy and harriet upbringing in the late 50s early 60s were stay-at-home mom and she wore a dress and made dinner every night she had she had social constraints that that i maybe kept her down a little bit Plus, she was with my dad, who was Mr. Jokester. He was the he was the dominant personality. He was not <laughs> he was not domineering, but he right. had the dominant personality. Oh, right. And she was she was happy to be the straight man to the to Abbott and Costello. She was she was happy to just they had a very happy marriage. But yes, I I think I think the cancer diagnosis, the quote death sentence that we all have, if everyone mm-hmm. realized that every day that at this, we're all terminal as soon as we're born. We gave, that gave her permission, and the, maybe the fact that she was out of where she was for the last 30 years, and now, now everybody that had certain ideas about how Norma should be or how she could, should act, all that evaporated. And she was allowed to really be, for the first time in 90 years, the real person that I, I or no one else knew was there. Maybe I don't even know she knew it was there, but it came out, and it, it, what a wonderful gift. Well, the pictures, it's like you you all fell in love with one another. It, it, like, and, and isn't that, I mean, connection? I mean, isn't that what it, life's about is connecting? And so you have these pictures throughout your journey of her doing, not her bucket list, but just similar things like a hot air balloon. And, uh, and of course, you have this book called Driving Miss Norma, which I encourage everyone to read because... There's a lot of things that we don't talk about that even got to the heart of who I am as a person um, in this book. And I really think, Tim, you opened up in a way as a writer that I so could relate to. Um, it, It was really beautiful. It was really beautiful. But there was one moment in the book that was, I think, a miracle. And I think when you're open to miracles, they happen every day. Um, and this was in Florida, that you ran into a couple that their son had died, and y'all were on a boat. And talk, talk to me a little bit about that experience. Actually, we, we met this couple. It, I, was, I was really meditating on this. I, one of the things that we never talked about was the death of my sister nine years earlier at age 44. My dad was totally inconsolable about it. He ref- he refused to believe it, that she could die before he did. And she was like CIA. She was she was the second highest ranking woman in the Secret Service. She had a she was very big heavyweight here in Washington D.C. where we're having this conversation, and it, it crushed them. It crushed both of them. Um, one of the things I wanted to accomplish on this trip was to maybe talk to mom now about my sister. I'd never seen anybody shed a tear about my sister. We didn't talk about my sister. 
we didn't talk about my sister. I, I, I wouldn't call home on her birthdays or on the anniversary of death because I was afraid that I would upset my parents. We never talked about it. So we're in Florida. We're on, on the pool deck late afternoon. There's only four of us, and we're in a hot tub, and there was a couple. And they had, uh, they had some strong drinks. And they were, they were kind of sad, but we talked. And that's when they opened up to us and told us about why they were there. Their, their one son, he was 29, he, he died of a heart attack. And then a year, year and a half later, their second oldest son committed suicide. And they had their last remaining sibling with them, and they were going to scatter the ashes of their children off the coast of Florida. And, and they asked us to come along. We immediately said, I, I don't think mom's up for a boat ride. And, <laughs> and she was. She was. As soon as we got back, she's I hope you said yes. But, <gasps> but then we had, there was a caveat. We had to tell her that what we were going to be doing. And she, she agreed. She just nodded her head. I could see empathy there. She understood that we're going to, this is, this is the mission. It wasn't just a pleasure ride. And we went out there and we, we came out past the surf and way out into the open ocean, stopped the boat. And the parents were playing uh, drink a beer by Luke Adams, the boy's favorite song. And they, they could talk about it. They could talk about their boys. We were laughing and crying and they're relating stories about them and how they were different, how they were the same and in their lives and how proud of they were of them. And it wasn't until that moment, I, I, it was actually a physical moment. I saw my mom outstretch her hand and hold the, the mother's hand. And I could see that, that, that my mom was, was, was healing as much as, as, the, as the other woman was. I, I mean, I would get choked up just because just the portion of that book was so powerful. Um, wow. I mean, it, it, it's just, gosh, I just thank God for that moment for you guys. And it, and it continued then. She, Raymond and I would go for walks with Ringo, our, our poodle, in the morning. And, and Joe would come by every morning and sit with my mom. And, and we, could, we could see that they were in there. Sometimes they were talking. Sometimes they were just holding hands. But they were bonding over grief, uh, a, a shared experience, you know, a club that no mother wants to belong to, you know, the loss of a child. And it helped, helped my mom open up to that, and it helped, helped me open up to the, to the, to the grief thing. We, I understood that we didn't have to, like, cry together. We could maybe just hold hands. We could just understand that my sister was an important part of our lives, and she may be gone, but we can't forget her. We need to remember her. We need to talk about her and, and that meeting those folks and seeing how they dealt with grief helped help my family open up to that. And, and it was a, a really big gift. What was it like for you? Stacy, Stacy was the most incredible woman I've ever met in my life. And for so long, we felt robbed of the opportunity to talk about her. We didn't know a lot of her, acquaintances and friends she had many but they were a different part of of her life than her family was and and for us to finally be able to talk about stace and to tell stories with norma and and laugh because she was funny and <laughs> and she was a badass it came across in the book how badass she was she was and and so that that allowed us to to do some healing that had had just been squelched for so long and so grateful. Do you think it was laying some foundation for what you guys were going to face 
because Miss Norma, your mom, was was facing her own end of life. Um, so talk to me about the last few weeks of this whole adventure that went viral. Um, now you have half a million people following you, offering for her to throw on a baseball at a at a national you know game. Um, and and talk to me a little bit about those last moments when you were with her because she y'all ended up in Seattle or off the coast of Seattle. The, what was the island? San, San Juan Island. Friday Harbor was the name of the town. We and so tell me, I mean, she died in the RV. She did. It, when we, we decided to go out there, she had been invited to go on a whale watching cruise on San Juan Island. And so we were going for it. We, we happen to also have friends that live on the island there. They oh, said, cool. they said, come on out, park your, park your motorhome on our land and let's go have some fun on our island. They were so excited for us to come. And within probably a week of us being there, we recognized that her health was declining very quickly. And we remembered back to when we were in the, in the hospital with her initial diagnosis that, that we asked the doctor, you know, what do we do when her health declines? We're going to be on the road. We might be, who knows where we'll be. Right, right. And he said, he said um, just find hospice wherever you are. And so that's what we did. We we found a, a local hospice. They cared for her and for us in in the motorhome. We went through a, a another series of conversations in the five wishes, and really were so clear about what her final wishes were that there was nothing, nothing but peace in that motorhome. And her death was beautiful. And she knew about the book. She she knew about the book. She's very excited about the book. You know, um, early on, she she was like, "Why are why is everyone interested in a couple of knuckleheads driving around the country?" It made no sense to her. But over time, we did lots of different interviews and things. And and there was a Chinese newspaper that wrote to us interview questions. And and one of them was, "What are you most proud of in your whole life?" So she had ninety plus years to to kind of go back in the catalog of I raised two great kids. I served in the war. I did this, that, and the other thing. And it took her a minute to answer. But then she said, what we're doing right now. So on some level, this quiet, tiny little woman got it that, that us telling our story was making a difference around the world. So you got a book deal and your life sort of has changed, but you're, you're maintaining the nomadic life. Um, the book is wonderful. I, I recommend everyone to read it if you're a caregiver or if you've ever loved someone, um, because it really has inspired me to, to do something that I probably would never do. And, and, and that's considering RV living. And, and so I, 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 it's really interesting how you allow people to even affect your life. Um, and the conversations that we have, um, and, and what this book has also done is not only it's Miss Norma's legacy, but it's your sister's, it's your father's, um, and it, right down to that waitress doing a cake on your dad's birthday. And it, it it's so moving um, that to remember is to heal. Um, but I remember talking to a doctor one time and she said, you know, closure's a myth. When you love someone, there is never closure. You carry them with you throughout your life. And I will say this. I am so happy, Tim, that you 
allowed this to happen because I know you were reluctant, but you you are changing people's lives. Your, your mom, your sister, and it's just been a really great experience talking to you guys. And I am going to, you're going to be my RV consultants for sure. <laughs> We'll, we'll do that. Although we've transitioned to a boat That's now. That's right. We still, we still have a lot of RV experience under our belt. Thanks for joining us today. And remember, you're the designer.